Today is Thursday, November 14th. I'm Kirk Kovac here for Politics NC with Gary Pierce. Gary, how are you? Doing great, Kirk. So we are huddled downtown Raleigh trying not to die from uh, exposure to the cold, and there's nothing else to talk about except what's on TV 24-7 these days, which is impeachment. So Democrats yesterday, I think, officially started the impeachment inquiry. Um, Adam Schiff was giving remarks and people were testifying and it's the circus has begun, uh, really. So I thought it would be interesting for us maybe to dig into how impeachment might impact North Carolina specifically, because there are plenty of people who get paid a lot more money to talk about it on CNN and MSNBC about the national implications. Uh, well, first off, what are your, you know, initial takeaways from impeachment thus far, um, the inquiry and then. Do you see how it's relevant to North Carolina? You know, because I'm old, I um, when I see these things start, although I didn't watch yesterday, I watched the news about it. I think about Watergate hearings. I think about the Iran-Contra hearings, sort of how they played on TV and what people see. And so yesterday you had these two guys, these uh, sort of sober, serious, um, uh, diplomatic people talking about how, how this concerned them. You had the Democrats trying to be sober and serious, and you know if if this is not impeachable, what is? And then you had the Republicans, sort of that was the clown show, I think, trying to do anything to distract, to uh, drag it down, to make it look like oh, there's nothing, nothing to see here, um, and really going through a lot of gyrations to do it. I mean, the real that, what's interesting is how the Democrats are focusing now on this um, this one clear thing, rather than this whole shebang that Mueller looked at, that this one thing, trying to get across to people, that narrow sliver, maybe 8%, 10% from some polls I've seen, who really are going to listen and make up their minds. Either they'll make up their minds that Trump should be removed from office by the Senate or by the voters in November. Are, are the Democrats getting that across and are people understanding agreeing with them that this is an offense that justifies being removed? That's the big question. And I don't know. I don't know yet. I mean, it's hard for me to put myself in the shoes of somebody who hadn't made up their minds about this whole thing yet. Well, that's part of the interesting aspect of it to me. And a buddy of mine was starting to watch yesterday, and I felt like he was kind of judging me because I told him I wasn't that interested in watching it uh, just because I feel this is reflected in the polls. Once the whole Biden thing happened and it was clear Democrats are going to impeach him, you saw the polls change immediately. And it's basically tracks one to one. If you dislike the president, you're in favor of impeachment and then vice versa. So it's like all things the same. It's kind of like where we were already, it seems like. Um, but I think that the nature of this presidency has has been such that this is not even like a big deal to me, at least. And I think a lot of people sort of just par for the course. There's another controversy every day. But I think the merits of this one are a lot different than some of the uh, issues du jour we've had before. And I also wonder your thoughts about when people elected him, and I think this is part of the defense for what he did and what he does, they knew what they were getting into. So if you like Trump, it wasn't because you thought he was going to be prim and proper once he took office. It's because this guy's going to shake things up. He shook things up, and now they're trying to impeach him because of it. So maybe this could be tuned into something a bit more North Carolina-related in terms of you know maybe what you think voters look at with that, but 
my opinion, at least, it feels like this was sort of baked into him as a person when he was elected. So people that supported him before are going to support him still. And I think your point is well taken that there is that very small sliver of people that will probably swing the election who are actually gettable in these states where it's not a foregone conclusion who's going to win. So what is the message for those people? Do you think it is just what the Democrats are doing in terms of bringing out these witnesses and these what should be credible sources to an objective listener or viewer? Or is it ultimately going to turn into they just have to field a good candidate to run against him next year? Well, I th- think you're right. I mean, we're, the public is sort of like the frog in the water that's being the the heat's being turned up. We've and and I think you made this point once. Democrats from the day Trump was elected, we've been setting our hair on fire about something else Trump has done. And and does that sort of lose its impact for a while? Because you're trying to tell a simple story here. The guy used military aid to Ukraine, which was under is still under serious threat from Russia. And rather than carrying out what we had decided was our foreign policy, he said to Ukraine, okay, I'll give you this, but you've got to investigate my opponent. I mean, Americans really ought to be outraged about that. And the fact that, you know, the, the Trump people obviously are not, they're going to justify anything he does. Um, the people who are against Trump is just one more piece of evidence. Trying to imagine that there is a small, I, I did a blog this week about this small group of people, and it's literally about 8% in six battleground states for next year, including North Carolina, who on the one hand say now by about a four or five point margin, oh, we don't think he ought to be removed from office. But by uh, almost the same four or five point margin, they say, but we think what, the House ought to investigate him. So that would indicate they want to know more. Now, it may be that some of these people, they want him investigated, they want to know the facts, but they don't want him removed because they want to be able to vote against him and vote him out, which is a much more resounding thing. I mean, you try to think ahead, there's really no chance the Senate is going to remove him. I mean, I can't imagine what it would lead 20 Republicans to abandon him. It is really much better for the country, as people have said, for the voters to decide this verdict. Well, that leads nicely into something I was interested in. And I saw, I don't know that this is necessarily true because, as I told you prior to, somebody, uh, a reporter, sort of uh, discredited this idea. But apparently Senator Burr, who is our senior senator here in North Carolina, Uh, floated the idea that the trial, once the House actually has a formal vote on impeachment, sends it over to the Senate to hold the trial, would last six to eight weeks, basically morning till night, nothing else to do, six days a week, uh, just wall-to-wall coverage on this. Um, But apparently Jonathan Swan from Axios had said he had sources from Republican leadership who said, I don't know where he got this idea from. But the idea remains, though, what does it look like in the presidential race if some of these senators are not in Iowa or New Hampshire or North Carolina, if it gets into March, and they're sitting in D.C. as jurors in the impeachment trial? I mean, that's not good for them if they're trying to run for president, right? Does that seem like something? If Republicans have basically decided ahead of time, you know, based off what we see now, we're not going to vote to remove this guy. 
strategically, you would think, and I wouldn't put this past Mitch McConnell, let's make the Democrats pay for what they're doing, keep them in Washington when they want to be running for president. seems like it makes sense to me. That's pretty cute. You know, in politics, one of the things you can always count on is the law of unintended consequences. Right. You, you, you try to plan things out and you get this complicated strategy and it goes exactly the opposite of the way you want. I don't understand why the Republicans would want six to eight weeks of harping on what Trump did, because that can't be good in the end. I mean, people are going to hear more and more about what he did, what Giuliani did, what the ambassadors did, and it doesn't it doesn't look good. And and so it would seem to me then you'd be helping make the case that, gee, we need to pick a Democrat who can above all beat Trump. And if you follow that through, maybe that helps a Biden for it to be all about Trump rather than for the debate to be about Medicare for all or Green New Deal or whatever the other issues would be in Democratic primaries that may help an Elizabeth Warren say more than it would Biden. Well, then... In terms of people running for Senate right now in North Carolina, say, for example, we've got a couple candidates on the Democratic side. Obviously, this becomes a question to them um, just to get something on the record or potentially for uh, Tom Tillis to run against uh, them saying this. But how do you respond when asked, you know, what would you do? Were you in the Senate right now making this vote instead of Tom Tillis? Um, what, what what process goes into um a communication strategy behind that in terms of, you know, if you're advising someone, here's how we're going to navigate this situation, because it is a huge deal. And with the president being sort of the most important factor down the ballot, um, that has to be something that these candidates are giving a lot of thought to. So how do you think that process goes in their minds in terms of responding? Well, I, I try to think of any scenario in which a Democrat running for the Senate next year can say anything less than yeah, he ought to be removed from office. <laughs> you know, um, I guess you can try to find some way to, um, so, you know, sort of tiptoe around it and say, oh, I wait for all the facts and decide, but I know for certain that he ought to be removed from office in November, if not before. By the same token, there's nothing a Republican can say other than, oh, this is just a Democratic witch hope and a hoax, and, you know, the president, oh, God, everything he did was just a perfect phone call, you know. Um, so I, I just don't see how anybody gets off that. Well, that kind of leads us on to a different subject, and you, you broached it a second ago um, with some of the premier policies that an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders has. So uh, crystal ball today from, from UVA Center for Politics. There were two interesting articles. One briefly was they moved the Louisiana uh, governor's race, which is currently a seat held by John Bell Edwards, a very moderate Democrat. Um, they moved that from a toss-up to lean Democrat, which is interesting. The turnout numbers in early vote were tracking well for a Democrat. And I know a lot of people wanted to take lessons from the Kentucky race last week where a Democrat eked out a victory, and it seemed like it was kind of a fluke, terrible incumbent Republican governor. Republicans won every other race that mattered in the state. And now this is sort of a flip side of that. You have a strong Democratic candidate fighting to hold a seat that he has really no business having in the first place based off of mm -hmm. how that state votes. Um, and then factor into that, their other article about Medicare for all. So this is a big ticket item for Democrats in the presidential primary. Um, and it's a very left leaning position and they did an analysis at the center for politics. And so they, they matched the way people 
took positions, candidates for House in 2018 on Medicare for All. They compared that to how Democratic or Republican the district was, and then they looked at who actually won. And just from that article, those candidates who endorsed Medicare for All versus the ones who did not perform significantly worse. And it was in the moderate districts that we actually saw Democrats winning in that they shied away from it the most. Mm -hmm. If you were in a district that Trump won by 10 or less, or Hillary won by 10 or less, those people were the least likely to endorse Medicare for All. But there were also, out of 40 districts that Democrats won, 31 of them were those types of districts where Trump barely won or Hillary barely won. So what lessons from this do you think Democrats can take leading into 2020? Because Medicare for All seems to be sort of a sticking point in the primary for president, but all the polling sort of kind of reflects it's not that popular. Well, it's popular with Democrats, and and it's it's popular with a lot of people who are going to be voting in the primaries. I think we talked before. My sense of it, this is a real generational divide. You know, my generation, a little more cautious, been through wars before. And then, you know, really smart people like Nancy Pelosi are saying, we don't need to go that far. We don't need to overpromise on, you know, Medicare for all and raise the risk of what's it going to cost and what happens when people lose their private insurance. But then I hear from younger Democrats saying, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, Elizabeth Warren's battle cry, you know, dream big and work hard that we need big changes and there's no place we need big change more than in, in health care in this country. I mean, the only thing I'm certain of is that exactly a year from now, one side or the other will be saying, I told you so. <laughs> you know, I told you it was a mistake to go out there on Medicare for all because now we've, we've, we've reelected Donald Trump. Or the other side is going to say, well, we told you it was a mistake to be too cautious and not dream too big and not give people something to believe in and something to vote for. I have no idea what, what, the, what the best way is. And it's actually possible to me, I can see a scenario where either one might work. Either one might be good enough, particularly after people hear more about Trump. Maybe whoever the Democrats put up is going to win. You know, even you, you look at these battleground polls, yeah, Biden is doing a lot better, but it's not by a huge margin. And and you can make an argument that uh, an Elizabeth Warren, I can't make it that Bernie Sanders would, would reshape the electorate and bring out new voters in a way. I mean, it's unlikely to, I think, conventional Democrats who think in conventional ways. But every time I think about what's unlikely, I think of two very unlikely things in politics, which were President Barack Obama and President Donald Trump. Well, that's a point well taken. I have an interesting... um I don't want to say interesting. It's a it's an issue maybe with the idea of promising something very big and not being able to deliver on it. I know they talk about in business you um, under promise, over deliver. Mm-hmm. What's the flip side of that in terms of politics? Is if you come in as an Elizabeth Warren say and say, okay, we're going to have Medicare for all, and then you look at a Senate which at best maybe has you know fifty two Democrats in it and Joe Manchin and tester already said they wouldn't get rid of the filibuster so automatically everything's doa um and we saw with president trump now to what degree people believed he was going to do what he said he did he would do i don't know but 
his whole argument basically in 2018 was we need bigger majorities to get through what we need to get through or, you know, we'll build the wall if we get a few more senators or something to that effect. I mean, I feel like this has been borne out the past few cycles. People can elect a president and give them majorities maybe, but after two years, they're ready to put a check on it in some way. If that means losing the House, if that means losing the Senate, you don't get to keep building bigger majorities the longer you're president. So I just, do you see the potential for backlash any more than usual, that backlash would come if you promise something big, and then once you're in office, it's abundantly clear that's just not possible? Well, I would, you know, when you promise something big, I, I, the way I'd rather think of it is you need to set a big goal. And I think certainly the way Democrats ought to do that is, whether it's Medicare for all, every American should have the right to get the health care they need without going broke, without going bankrupt. However we achieve that, that ought to be the goal. It's just like um, I don't think the debate ought to be so much about the Green New Deal or some particular plan as we've got an existential threat with climate change that we're seeing almost every day on some some level in this country. We've got to deal with it. And, and those are two fundamental differences between Democrats and Republicans. I mean, Republicans basically say, no, we, don't, we need to repeal Obamacare. We need to go backward on climate change. Oh, it's not real or it's not something we, we need to worry about right now. I think if you frame the debate that way, it's winning for Democrats. I, there, there is a risk you get into Medicare for all and then you start talking about, well, who pays what? Who is going to pay higher taxes? And then I, when I do, I do have to lose my insurance. Is that a problem? Do I like that or not? I, um, I think you set big goals, and then, then you work toward them, and you keep working toward them. And that way your answer is always, you know, that we, as president, you know, we set a big goal. This is what we decided. This is what I promised I would do. I'm going to keep working at that as long as I can. We may not be making enough progress, but we haven't given up. I think that is a, a charitable way to frame it. But I also think if you fast forward five years from now and you had a an Elizabeth Warren president and you compare that to if we had a Joe Biden president, I feel like the actual ramifications in terms of legislation are, are probably pretty similar. Well, probably so, yeah. Because I think yeah. some of them are like, yeah, we're going to build towards this over the course of X number of years which is great if you have Democratic majorities for X number of years. So I I understand the appeal of it, but I guess it's just the cynic in me that feels like it's dangerous if if you're promising things that are very difficult to realize. But then again, you know, what's the point of a movement if you don't have some big um, goal toward which to fight? So I understand both sides of it, but I just wondered your thoughts in, in that regard. Um, so that does sort of leave us with the recurring issue of North Carolina politics for the last oh, 20 years or so. We have districts that need to be redrawn, <laughs> and they have not been redrawn yet. I think today, though, they're making a lot of progress. I, I believe by the end of this week they should have something at least to present to the judges, at which point it is my understanding that that panel of judges will either approve or disapprove of it, and because they've given this legislature so many chances to redraw the maps. At that point, I, I think it would probably go to uh, some sort of special master, some um, professional who could draw these maps, get them approved quickly, because 
it runs the risk of interrupting the primary that's supposed to happen in March. And the more proximate issue is the, the filing deadline. It's one thing to have the primary in March, mm -hmm. but I believe some point in December, you actually have to have filed to run for those offices. So if they don't know what the districts look like, you can't file to run and then everything gets pushed back. So do you have any thoughts on the redistricting? I know we're in it for the long haul. I guess, you know, I know this. a lot of people are unhappy with what the legislature has done so far. So you, you know, maybe it's a safe bet it'll go to the court. But, you know, really the, what we're going to see is more competitive districts in the triangle, probably. That, that you know, George Holdings District, for one, maybe some others. That's where the real difference is going to be. And I'm, the other thing that fascinates me about this is we're drawing new districts that are based on the 2010 population. Uh, the figure, I, you know, don't hold me to it, is at the time Wake County had 700,000 people. Now we have a million people where the district's going to be based on 700,000. But then in another two years, we'll have another set of new districts, maybe an additional seat. So it's going to be topsy-turvy. But it's clearly, it's just like the legislature. It's going to be more competitive. Uh, whether we're going to be able to compete in those, you know, Piedmont districts, those areas that have gone so Republican, well, maybe we can, maybe around Greensboro, maybe Charlotte or up around Asheville somehow gets more competitive. But you're right, this is an, this is an ongoing story. And, um, you know, we're going to, you feel like we're going to be stuck doing this forever. Well, it's almost the silver lining in uh Representative Lewis's most famous quote because he couldn't draw them to be 11, you know, two. They had to be 10, three. Well, that means no matter what happens, the districts that we end up with are going to be more favorable to Democrats because it's impossible for them not to be the way they are drawn now. Uh, and it seems like uh, the same. What is it? There's a, there's a, uh, a joke about North Carolina weather. If you don't like it, wait 10 minutes. Mm. Same is true for our maps. If you don't like the, the districts, just wait 10 minutes. There'll be new ones. So like you said, well, the, you know, a very likely outcome is we get these new maps. They run in them next year, 2020. There's a census. They re redrawn again. We add a map because, or we add a district because the population grew. And um, that only increases the importance of this state in terms of the electoral college as well. Suddenly North Carolina keeps growing. We're, I think now the 10th largest state, that only gets bigger. People keep moving here, not moving out. So we, North Carolina is only going to get more competitive, more expensive to run in, and more pivotal in elections because, you know, Ohio is always supposed to be a bellwether, and it's kind of been trending Republican, whereas North Carolina could become the swing state. Well, you know, the New York Times, uh, the upshot, Nate Cohn, he looks at six states, yeah. North Carolina is one of them, battleground state next year. And so it's not just congressional races where we're going to have two sets of districts. Same thing legislative. We have new districts for next year. Well, then after the 2020 census, the 2021 legislature will redraw the legislative seats, and that will be the legislature we elect next year. So this, you know, it really becomes critical. And that's a big question, too. Um, who those legislators will be. Exactly. If Democrats take the majority. Will Democrats yeah. have a majority of one house, for example? Yeah, well, so that's another important thing to keep top of mind. There really isn't a single race in North Carolina that's not interesting in the next year. And the, the other thing about redistricting, I can't help, but they always remind you that the governor cannot veto right. redistricting. And somebody asked me why that was, because the veto passed in Governor Hunt's last term. 
um, ironically enough, thanks to Republicans who had taken the House. And uh, one of the compromises we made, and I don't remember why or when or how, <laughs> I guess the legislature insisted on it, was that uh, the veto could not cover redistricting, which you look back on it, that's regrettable, but uh, yeah. you know, it's what we had to do, I guess. Well, that should about do it today. There is never any shortage of topics to cover in North Carolina politics. So uh, we'll leave it there, see where things fall next week. We'll know who the governor of Louisiana will be for the next four years at that point, and we should have some idea maybe of what our congressional districts will look like. There'll always be something to talk about for our many happy listeners who we love. <laughs> <laughs>